Well, we're going to be back in the book of Matthew, so who needs a Bible? Just raise your hand, and uh, they will bring one right to you. And uh, then if you can, if you can turn with me to Matthew 14. So we have been looking in Matthew before Christmas. We were looking under a, we kind of take a, a chunk of it and put it under a certain title. And so we were under the uh, title, All In. But did you think it would be All Easy? And uh, it's not. And uh, Jesus proves to be a challenge. I mean, he challenges the crowd. He challenges the religious elite. Uh, time and again, he's challenging his own disciples. You know why? Because to follow Jesus is to follow someone who's unlike anybody else. And his way is unlike anybody else too. And God explains that. He says, my way is not your way. And uh, as the heavens are above the earth, so is my way above your way. And we just left to our natural self, wouldn't think of going about things the way God does. That's why we need to be in his word and let his spirit guide our thoughts and to say and to, to let him know that our heart, my heart, oh Lord, is desiring of following your way. And there's a tension there. And we're looking at that today. We're asking the question, can Jesus satisfy? And are you willing to go the Jesus way and let go of your own way of doing things to follow Jesus' way? And I'm hoping that we respond with the uh, challenge accepted. And so um, we're looking at the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. It's a pretty famous story. It's found here in Matthew 14. It's also found in Mark 6. And it's found in Luke. It's found in John chapter 6. And uh, so I'm going to read the account as given by Matthew. So now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said, Well, uh, <coughs> we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Well, bring them to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate, and they were satisfied. And then they took up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about 5,000 men plus women and children." Now, we're looking here in Matthew. This is one of the most famous miracles that Jesus did, the feeding of the 5,000, where the Bible claims Jesus took a little boy's lunch, five little barley loaves and two little fish, and fed 5,000 men and women and children. And the, the most uh, full account of this is found in the Gospel of John, even though, it's, like I said, it's found in all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, stories of Jesus. So here's what we learn. Jesus meets our basic needs. And Jesus is the bread of life. And following Jesus is the only way to be completely satisfied. So here in Matthew 14, you have vintage Jesus. He's putting other people's needs ahead of his own. He's alleviating suffering. He's healing the masses one at a time. He's teaching and he's testing his disciples. You know, he said, we have a problem. There's 5,000 hungry people. What are you going to do? Where do we go to meet that need? And I'll tell you later. So Jesus does this miracle. Only God can do miracles like this. He feeds 5,000 men and, and all the other people who were there with just five butter rolls and two little sardines. And everybody eats until they're satisfied. In fact, they have 12 basketful of leftovers. 
So there's some lessons here in the loaves that we want to look at, but there are five events. If you were to read the other gospel accounts as well, you see there's five events that kind of set the stage for this miracle. First off, the disciples, Jesus had sent them off two by two to do some preaching and teaching and talking to total strangers about the good news. And I don't know if you've ever tried that. It can be kind of scary. But then you get into it, and it can be kind of fun. And they found that, wow, he said, amazing things happen when we talk with people and tell them the truth of God's word and uh, share it with them. And uh, so they had just come back from that, and they needed some time with Jesus to debrief it. And then right on top of that, they had learned of the death, uh, the violent death of John the Baptist, who was Jesus' uh, cousin and friend, and also the one who had announced that the Messiah was coming. Also, you have Jesus just bone-weary from doing all the ministering to crowds and needing a little time uh, just by himself. You know, I don't know if you ever have talked to somebody who it, it gets kind of post-holiday, I've had enough of company and enough of eggnog and enough of decorations and I'm ready just to pack it all up and... Anybody in that group? Yeah. So, so you know what he's talking about here. I mean, Jesus and his disciples have intentionally left the crowds behind and gone to a remote place to rest and to grieve the death of their friend and to be alone and to recharge their batteries. But they don't get that opportunity because Jesus is so popular and the, the crowds see where the boats are going and they start running along the shore and who knows, they pick up other people and uh, words getting out and it's kind of like paparazzi without the cameras, you know, chasing along there. So when they finally get there, there's this huge crowd waiting for them. And instead of being frustrated, Jesus has compassion and he begins to heal the sick people who are among them. So this powerful miracle that we're looking at today began for Jesus and the disciples as an unwelcome interruption. You ever had one of those in your well-planned agenda? You know, your schedule for the day, you had something you were set and you were ready to do and then it kind of gets interrupted. That's exactly what had happened here. And so I want us to look at some of the lessons that we can learn from the loaves. Number one, Jesus loves impossible circumstances. He loves impossible. You know, we measure, the, here's a size problem, and boy, I can solve that, or I need to have help with this, or that's just way too big for me. But Jesus just loves what we would look at and say, impossible, that's impossible. Jesus is at work here. And God works in ways that we can't predict or think up. I mean, who would have thought of saying... 700 years before it happened, well, a virgin is going to conceive and give birth to a son. And he will be the wonderful counselor, mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Or who would have thought of sending foreigners who were wise sages, wise men, following a star to come all the way from the east and inadvertently trip into Jerusalem and alert the wicked King Herod that there's another king come into town, and uh, also the indifferent religious leaders. And then that same star leads them to the feet of the baby Jesus so they can worship him and give him uh, king-sized gifts. And then when Jesus starts his ministry, he heals this guy with leprosy. Nobody's even supposed to touch somebody with leprosy. But Jesus touched him and healed him. Or getting in a boat and it's rocking and pitching, and he stands up and says, peace be still. And the wind and the waves just calm down. Or going to a wedding and rescuing the hostess because the wedding had lost all of its punch. And he you know, refilled the punch bowl and kept the party going. Or healing a guy who has been paralyzed for 38 years. That's longer than Jesus had been alive at the time. 
or bringing a man back from the dead who is dead for four days, standing at the tomb and calling him back to life. Or another one that Luke records is a funeral is in process, and they're walking out to the gravesite with the casket, and it's the, uh, the son of a widow, and everybody's crying, and Jesus stops the casket, and it must have tapped on, opened it up, and the guy sits up. And then you have here this a crowd out in a remote place. In Israel, you seem to kind of have three areas. You've got wilderness, and you have urban areas where there's uh, cities or villages, and then there are little farms around them. And then you have this remote places is another section of the way that country is described. And so Jesus does this miracle. Well, what it shows us is that impossible and omnipotent really shouldn't appear in the same dictionary. Because Jesus loves the impossible because it provides a perfect test. God puts us in impossible situations sometimes to stretch our faith muscles. He puts us in impossible situations to strengthen our eternal perspective of God's doing something big and we're a little part of that. And he has always been faithful. He'll continue to be faithful. But we are in that moment of test where it's in focus and we're wondering what's going to happen next and can I trust God God puts us in situations that show his incredible power and his care. You know, we find ourselves in overwhelming situations or impossible situations personally and collectively. When Jesus was leaving the earth to his disciples, he said, go make disciples of all nations. Now, they did a pretty good job in their day, going from being 11 scared people, hiding in a locked closet, to 30 years it was a world faith. But they did not finish this commission. This is called the Great Commission. Go make disciples of all nations. We do our little part where we're preaching, we're gathering, we're teaching God's word, we're investing and inviting people to join us, we're sending missionaries, we're helping to plant churches different places. Uh, but uh, there is a group called Finishing the Task that is, has counted every people group in the world and has been watching the number drop of how many people groups there are that are what they would call unengaged. An unengaged people group is there's no Christians, there's no scripture, there's no missionaries trying to reach them, there's no churches, there's no baptized believers. And so that number is down around, has been dropped as, as of December, it dropped as low as 200, where there were nobody trying to reach those groups. In your and my lifetime, in the next couple of years, we could fulfill this great commission of Jesus Christ. Church hasn't been able to do it for 2,000 years. We might actually be alive when it's fulfilled. Or you look at even more locally for us. Here we are eager and we're ready to get back to Dana Point and they're working away and I wish it would go faster. You probably wish it would go faster. But you wonder, is Jesus testing us? Are we patient? Are we doing more than just waiting are we flourishing where we find ourselves? Are we getting his work done? I've, I've said this before, but I had this thought one day. Do you know, if Jesus wanted to, he could have just, we woke up one day and the campus is finished. It's ready to move into. It's, in fact, all the furniture is already there. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to pray. We don't have to give anything. We don't have to sweat. It's just done. He could have done it that way if he wanted. Must not have wanted to because he didn't do it. 
So he must have had something in mind for us to participate, something for us to learn. I hope that we're learning the lessons of, of uh, patience and persistence and generosity and uh, flourishing where we are and uh, making a difference regardless of what's going on around us, of keeping our eyes on Jesus. And I think he might just be testing us too, don't you think? I mean, he tested his own disciples. Why would he leave us out? I think he's... He's on to something here. So the disciples, you know, they see this crowd that's gathered. The crowd just can't get enough of Jesus. They want to be around him and hear what he has to say and watch what he's going to do next. And it's, it's always exciting. And the disciples are impressed with Jesus and his teaching and his healing. His, I got that backwards. His healing and his teaching and his preaching. But as that day wore on and on and on, some of the more practical disciples finally started to notice it's starting to get dark. These people haven't had lunch or dinner. They're going to get hungry. They're going to have needs that we can't meet. We better turn them loose. Wish Jesus would stop talking. And finally, somebody stepped up to say something to Jesus and said, the day's almost over. Send these people away where they can get what they need. And Jesus can surprise you. I mean, they expected Jesus to say, oh, my goodness, I lost track of the time. I'm sorry. Let's all stand and be dismissed. You all got to go and turning them loose. But he didn't do that. He said, they don't need to go anywhere. You give them something to eat. <laughs> you got 5,000 men plus women and children. You probably have 20, 25,000 people. Who knows? I mean, it's huge. And here they've expected Jesus to do one thing, and he does something different. And inside they're going, wait, that's impossible. We can't possibly do that. And Jesus is pitching this to his disciples to, to, to have them struggle before he does the miracle. And so they said to him, well, we only have five loaves here and two fish. And he says, bring them here to me. Now, John's version of this has a bit more detail of the challenge Jesus put before the disciples. John 5 says this, lifting up his eyes, then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to his Philip, which was one of the 12 disciples, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, Philip wasn't one of the top students in the class. But John says something kind of on the side. He said this to test him, for Jesus himself knew what he was going to do. Well, Philip answered him, wow, 200 denarii, which denarii is the day's wages. So 200 days wages. If you worked five days a week for four weeks in the month, that's 20. So that's 10 months. 10 months wages worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little bite. And one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and Andrew and Philip are often aligned together, so they must have sat near each other in class, said, well, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but <laughs> what's that among so many? Notice the difference between Jesus' question and Philip's answer. Jesus says, where do we go to get bread for these people? And Philip says, well, how much would that cost? And when God asks you a hard question, you and I need to listen closely, very closely, because often the answer is found in the question. What was the right answer? Where do you go to meet an impossible need? Where should we go? Well, the answer is you go to Jesus. We go to Jesus, not to our own plans or procedures or resources. Go to Jesus. Jesus says, you give them something to eat. I have an example from this, this week. I was blessed on your behalf. 
you know that we collected on Christmas Eve an offering for this little church, Abundant Joy. We showed you a few clips of it. We invited people to participate in it. We collected an offering for them of $8,165. I think that's tremendous. You, you were to be applauded. So <clears throat> we invited the pastor and his wife. They came by uh, on Tuesday to receive this gift. I don't know if I have a picture of it, but we can show you. We took a picture of handing them the check and them being nice and saying thank you. And we had pleasant conversation and hearing about their ministry. And then they opened the envelope and the wife burst into tears and the pastor teared up as well. And they, I'm looking at them and said, what's the matter? And they said, we never thought you'd give us this much. I said, well, do you have something in mind what you're going to use it for? And right away, they almost both said, well, Yes. We owe $8,000 in our rent if we're going to lose our place. Now, look at is, is that the Lord, huh? I said, well, what are you going to do with 165? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I didn't ask that. <laughs> That's in the basket of leftovers. You know what I'm saying? They can use that for, for whatever they want. Jesus says, you give them something to eat. So I just want to say thank you, South Shores. Thank you for being part of that. And I'm guessing if you're like me, you didn't miss a meal over Christmas time. You, you didn't miss out any presents that you would have gotten because of your generosity to help Abundant Joy Church. And God used us to help this little church to increase its joy and to keep its doors open and keep going. Jesus loves to do the impossible. And sometimes I think one of his biggest challenges is to get us to think like Jesus. To be generous like Jesus. To respond like Jesus would respond. It's left to ourselves, you see. We can become pretty self-centered and self-focused and self-centered and selfish. So Jesus loves to do the impossible. The other lesson you see here is little in the hands of Jesus becomes much. I mean, you had two perspectives, Philip and Andrew, but both of them are wrong. Philip goes, it's impossible. It would cost way too much. Andrew goes, it's impossible. We have so little. Well, we looked at how Jesus deals with the much, but Jesus says, bring them here to me. And I'm not sure if he's talking about the little loaves and the fish, bring those here to me. Or if he's talking about the crowd, bring them all here to me and let me get the, anyway, he got both of them and he got them together. And Jesus' miracle gave powerful answers to both Philip and to Andrew, to the, the, oh, it would take too much. No need is too great for Jesus. Bring it to Jesus. And if we say, well, we have too little, little in the hands of Jesus becomes much. See, two life-changing questions that we need to be asking ourselves. You might need to write these in your notes and, and think about them. What have I decided is too big for God to accomplish? What have I decided that's too big for God? I don't think he could do it. I don't think, I mean, I've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for that family member to come to Christ. It's been decades, and they never have. I'm going to just quit. It's probably too hard for God to ask to help that person become a believer. Don't give up. What if I decided it's too little for God to work with? Well, God doesn't need my gift. I'm sure somebody will do much more. How about just being faithful and giving God the little that we have? I mean, God can use a little to do great things. There is a story in Genesis 37 of a guy named Joseph. It's also found in the Quran. Joseph kind of was a brash kid, said some kind of rude things to his older brothers, and he had 10 of them. And they finally got so mad when they had an opportunity, they literally sold him into slavery in Egypt. And then it got worse. He went to work, got accused falsely, found himself in prison for 12 or 15 years. But then God used him. 
One little person saved the world from starvation. God used him. Or you've got Gideon. Well, Gideon was at a time where Israel was under threat from their enemies, so he is hiding and he's trying to thresh some grain. And an angel shows up and says, Oh, you who are highly favored by God. And Gideon's kind of a smart aleck. He goes, Yeah, well, if I have all this favor from God, I wonder what it would be like without all this favor, you know, because he's, uh, things aren't going so well for him that day. And uh, God says, Look, it, you're going to lead the army to overcome the enemy. And Gideon didn't want the job, but God impressed it on him. And so he got several thousand people together. And God looked at him and said, your army is way too big. Pare it down. They pared it down to 300. So they were 300 against tens of thousands, like 30,000 on the other side. And God used it and did a miracle where God used a little and a great thing was done. And God got the victory and the glory. On and on and on, you've got Moses didn't want to go back to Egypt. I'm a broken guy. My life hasn't gone all that well. I'm hiding out here in the desert. And God said, go back to Egypt, tell them, let my people go. And God used Moses to go bring Pharaoh and Egypt to its knees and to move his people out of slavery into the promised, uh, toward the promised land. They got out into the wilderness and uh, God was working on their attitude and it took way too long to get it right. So they had a time out for about 40 years. And God used Moses to bring them the law and to give them order and to show that God wanted to live among his people. Or you've got David in his sling. I mean, he was just showing up to, to bring his brothers, you know, a snack from, from home just to remember they were fighting in the army. He comes around the corner and this giant is uh, lambasting God's people and smearing God's name. And David uses his sling and a smooth stone to bring down the giant. Over and over and over, there's times where God reduces our resources. It increases our need to depend on him. But when we share the little thing that we have, it might seem like a little thing, but when we finally let go of it and just give it to God, God uses the little we have to show how great he is. I had one very teeny example of that this week. But, you know, my mom had a grand piano, and she's gone on to heaven. She doesn't need it. And it's time to move things around and downsizing that i got to figure out what to do with this piano. And so I had that problem this week. And you'd be amazed how many people don't want or don't need a baby grand piano in their life right now. Okay? And uh, so I had asked and taken lots of rejection. And finally, the day comes. The next day, I am moving this thing somewhere. And so I literally prayed. I said, God, could you please do something that only you could do? to make a connection for this piano to get to some... I mean, this piano's been used to, for the glory of God since my earliest memories are this piano opening up and smashing out a light in the, in the ceiling, you know, as they were moving it. And so it's been with us a long time. So I went out and I told Linda Doucette, who works at the front desk, she's kind of the den mom for everybody here, and I said, Linda, I said, I, I got this need. I need to find somebody who wants a baby grand piano. I need to do it today. She goes, okay, well, let me think about that. Well, of course, all the offices are real close together, so Barb, the assistant in the next office, yells from in there, I have a friend who told me she's been praying for a baby grand piano. And we got the two together this week lady came over. She has had some hard knocks in her life. She lost her piano. She's been praying for one. She wondered, said, God forgotten me. And we put the piano in her house. I have a picture of her. She's hugging this grand piano <laughs> in tears. I mean, it was something you go, only God could do this and make it beautiful. And you give the little that we have to God. And it, I mean, it, we just knew it was a God thing. God uses the little that we have to show how great he is. 
So you get back to our story. It says Jesus ordered the crowd to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looks up to heaven and he says a blessing. So he tells the disciples, look, get people organized into groups of 50. Have them sit down. So they're going to, please sit down, please sit down, please sit down, please sit down. You know how that goes. Please sit down, please stop talking. Please sit down, please sit down. So they finally get everybody sitting down. And then it says, and then he said a blessing. Okay, disciples, come here, come here. Let's gather around. What is that? little? Oh, that's the snack. Okay, let's, let's pray over that. If you were one of those disciples, would you close your eyes really tight while you did that prayer, or would you be peeking to see if anybody else is wondering, what are we going to eat? You know, where is the food, right? And so Jesus blesses this, and then he starts handing it out. I mean, I think the disciples would have felt, this is really awkward. We are thanking God for food that's not here. But it was their faith. And Jesus is teaching us, instead of complaining about what we don't have, give thanks to God for what we do. And it looks so small and so insignificant, but they gave it to Jesus, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it. And we don't know exactly what the miracle was, but they just kept handing it out, handing it out, handing it out, handing it out. Pretty soon, everybody, it says they all ate, and they were satisfied. Remember, Philip had calculated 10 months' wages would be enough to give everybody one little bite. But Jesus fed them as much as they wanted. See, begin with what you have and you give it to Jesus Christ and you let him take care of the rest. They picked up 12 basketful of scraps. Now, this is a display of God's power. I mean, in the face of thousands of hungry people and 12 worried disciples, what's going to happen? We are going to be so embarrassed. And these people are starving and the enormity of the task, Jesus makes the impossible happen. And not just a little. A display of abundance. Twelve basketfuls left over. Why twelve baskets? I don't know. Maybe each disciple needed an object lesson themselves. Knowing where they were on the, the, along the Sea of Galilee on the Jewish side, this was primarily a Jewish crowd, and they had 12 tribes. So maybe that's one basket for each tribe, just to remember. Pastor Derek, who's leading our mission team right now to Cuba. They're worshiping in Cuba this morning. Um, when he was preaching on this miracle, here's what he said, and I'm going to quote him. In feeding the 5,000, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the great satisfier of people's needs. But it doesn't finish there. The purpose of the miracle is to lead you to a new question. Here it is. Will you listen to Jesus when he tells you what you truly need? Do, will you listen to Jesus? Do you put Jesus in charge? And that's really lesson number three, the challenge of who's in charge. You see, John tells us more. He says that when the people saw the sign of what Jesus had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who's supposed to come into the world. We should take him and make him king by force. And Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. These people have seen a true miracle, and they recognize that that was a miracle But they didn't learn the lesson. They jumped to the wrong conclusion. They said, he is a miracle worker. He can do miracles. Let's collar him and let's get him to do the job we want him to do. Rather than saying, only God could do a miracle like that, put God in charge and follow him. The people's response is, make him king. And Jesus wasn't going to go about it that way. He did not need to be a political king in Israel for a few years He was already king of kings and lord of lords, and he had come into this world to die for human sin, to make a way so people could be right with God, so that God doesn't have to be angry. You don't have to wonder, am I going to get into heaven or not? If you ask Jesus to be your savior, you're in, because he paid the price for your sin. 
So Jesus withdraws because he disperses the crowd, sends them away. The people ate the free food, but they didn't learn the lesson. Why do you follow Jesus? Is it for the free food, for the fun, for the free stuff? Because Jesus has the obvious power. He can give me what I want. I mean, look how Jesus works. Look who Jesus is. He's concerned about people's greatest needs. That day it was food, so he did a miracle. He did what we would call the impossible because he's God. But he needed to be recognized as God and for people to bow before him and to say, God, do what you want in my life. Because Jesus wanted more than just to be recognized for doing something great. He wants to be put in charge. And he wants you. He wants your heart. He wants a relationship with you. So if you're going to have a relationship with him, because he can forgive your sin, but only if you ask him. And he can fulfill you with purpose if you just follow his lead. And he offers you a friendship forever in heaven guarantees you a place for eternity in God's presence if you just believe that he is God and you ask him to forgive your sin and you put him in charge. Can Jesus satisfy? Yes, and then some. Just before he left the earth, he celebrated with the disciples and he used the, the bread and the cup on the table to give them a little reminder. Let's pause and pray and then we're going to share that together. Dear Jesus, Thank you that you are the bread of life and that you feed not only our bodies, you feed our souls. And I thank you for your sacrifice on the cross that makes it possible for you to offer us forgiveness. It makes it possible for you to open a door for us to be right with God. It makes it possible for you to guarantee that we will have a home in heaven. And so we thank you for the assurance that that gives us. Now today... May we respond in faith, recognizing you are the Lord. You can do miracles, and you're doing a work in our hearts. Draw us to yourself. May we put you in charge of everything. Amen.